hope it stays. It's, it's, I told Kim this is God's gift on my birthday. Um, let me pray for us. Father, we thank you. We do thank you. We do thank you for family, for good friends, for sunshine, for cherry trees, for good music, for good meals, for life. We want to foster in our minds and our hearts a sense of gratitude before you. We do want to know you. We do want to touch you. We do want to see your face. We can only imagine what it would be like to hold your hand, to embrace you, to hear your voice, your literal voice in our ears to have you at our wedding, to have you shower us with your grace in such a gratuitous fashion. Father, use these songs, these prayers, this sermon in only the way that you can to form us and shape us, to challenge us and to push us out to be more like you, and to be your witnesses in this world. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So in the movie uh, Signs, Graham Hess is a uh, former priest who stopped his ministry to raise his children. And as the movie progresses, you find out that uh, his wife died in a tragic accident. And as the plot of the movie reaches its conclusion, Graham suddenly realizes that seemingly sort of random things in his life, like his daughter leaving half-full glasses of water all around the house or the non-sequitur things that his wife says as she's passing away, were all connected to one important thing in his, that was yet to come in his life, that all these things were said and done to prepare him for some event uh, which would happen in the future. And today, we start this new series uh, called Signs, looking at uh, eight different moments in, in, the, in the Gospel of John, which are signs uh, pointing to Jesus' identity and his saving work for us in this world, signs in the Gospel of John which show the way for new life in Christ. Now, I'm sure we've all taken a road trip someplace, and as you travel along a road, you know, you look for various signs along the way to place your coordinates. You you, you look for mile markers that show, show you how far you've come or uh, how far you still have to go, things like that. Signs letting you to know uh, of upcoming exits. Signs welcoming you into a new state or telling you that you're leaving a state. Or signs when you arrive that you've reached your destination, right? Um, signs show the way. And in the Gospel of John, the signs of Jesus show us something very important. And that is that God is at work, that God is at work in the world through Jesus for our salvation, for the salvation of the world. When Jesus turned water into wine, he showed his presence in, the, in a very ordinary moment. He shows us that he comes in ordinary moments of everyday life, that he actually cares about you. Apparently, still at it today, 
I stumbled across this in a local store. Read the sign and look what's underneath it, right? <laughs> Let's read that passage now for ourselves, because it's good to see it on video, but it's also good to read it. Turn to page 724 in your pew Bibles to John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. And as you're turning there, let me just say that weddings here in America are very different than weddings uh, in other parts of the world. I've, I've done a few weddings in my life. I've done my children's weddings. I'm planning one for this summer. My daughter's getting married. Um, and they are very different here than they are in other parts of the world. In other places, this sort of communal worldview, these, these uh, limited incomes sometimes, or the proximity of people in village life makes it only natural to open the doors for everybody to come, right? Um, that since, you know, like when you live in a village, the wedding is typically in your lawn, like in your front yard or your backyard, and uh, everyone knows everyone in a communal, and in a communal worldview, the everyone trumps the individual, doesn't it? For instance, you know, in, when we lived in Indonesia, if there was a wedding in a village, the whole village was invited without being invited, right? It was simply understood that everybody gets to come, and some of these villages were very large, like a thousand people, right? Living in a place governed by a communal worldview, you could not fathom inviting neighbor A without inviting neighbor B. It would just be unheard of. You could never do that. And as foreigners, um, if we were driving through, you know, through the countryside and there, we drove through a village and there was a wedding there, inevitably our, our car, if they saw who we were, they would wave our car down and make us stop and usher us into the wedding and sit us in the front row. They'd move somebody out and let us sit in the front row. It was just such an honor to, to you know, be there and have them do that for us, and, and it was really beautiful. So, we, you know, people we don't even know, we're, suddenly we're at their wedding celebrating with them. And it sounds like this was one of those types of weddings, given the amount of water that Jesus changes in the wine, especially after all the other wine had been uh, finished already. And side note, wouldn't it be great to have Jesus show up at your wedding? That would be the coolest thing ever, right? Well, it begins like this. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there. And Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. And when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, uh, they have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? That sounds kind of, her. woman, why do you involve me? He replied, my hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, uh, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing. That's an important point. Each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. And then he told them, now draw out some and take it to the master of the banquet. And they did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Period. End of passage. Now, if we continue with our analogy of a road trip, right, of traveling, the, the sign under consideration today comes upon us so quickly that we're not ready for it. It's like 
that we thought the exit was way down the road and it comes right upon us and we're in the left lane and we got to cut over really quick, right? Because this is only the beginning of the second chapter and right away we read that Jesus is, and his mother and the disciples are all invited to this wedding in Cana and when they run out of wine, his mother asks you know, him to do something about it and we all know that whatever you do, you do not disappoint a Jewish mother, Right? And so he says, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. And like any good, respectable Jewish mother, she doesn't listen to that because her, her request, her questions are actually demands. Like when my wife says, hey, when are you going to clean up your side of the room? That's not a question. That's a demand, right? So she brushes him off and she turns to the others and she says, do whatever he says. Do whatever he says. Right? That's, that's probably how she sounded. Do whatever he says. <laughs> so Jesus turns the water in the purification jugs into wine. But not just any wine. The best, most delicious wine. Not Chad's Ford Pennsylvania fruit wine. But the best of Napa Valley Cabernet Sauvignon. Right? Wine that tastes so good it catches people by surprise. And we're also caught by surprise when we read in verse 11, this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Canaan and Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him, right? So only 11 verses into chapter 2, and the glory of Christ is already being revealed, and it's prompting disciples to put their faith in him, right? It's as if there's, you know, as though a G, the GPS says that, you know, you've arrived at your destination already, but you haven't even left your street. You've just pulled out of the driveway and you're already there, right? You haven't even walked or driven out of the neighborhood. So what's going on? Well, the key to understanding the sign is in verse 4. When his mother asks him to do something, he responds, my hour has not yet come. An hour is the, the, the pivotal word there. Because in the Gospel of John, when Jesus or the narrator uses that word hour, it refers specifically to one thing. And that is the hour of his death. The hour of his crucifixion. What we're coming up to in Easter, right? And that is the point to which all time and eternity pivot. That's why I'm stubborn and I will never use A.C.E. and B.C.E. I like the old BCAD because all of time and eternity pivot on this story of Jesus for all of humanity, not just us as Christians. It, you know, so as we see in John 13, 1, we see that word there too where it says it was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end, right? Loving them to the end, to give his own life, and all the stuff that he's done, all the signs that he's given us up to this point about who he is and what he is, shedding his own blood for those that would actually be crucifying him. And so while sitting at this wedding feast, which according to the Old Testament prophets was often an image of the restoration and redemption or reconciliation of the people of Israel with God, Jesus is thinking about his hour, his death, his crucifixion. And this is imaged by the prophet Isaiah, all this stuff, in chapter 25 of 
of the book that bears his name. It says, on this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples. This sounds like a wonderful party to me, right? A banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples. Isn't that good news? The sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. In that day they will say, surely this is our God. We trusted him. Trusted in him. He saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. And it is his salvation because we do nothing to get it. He gives it freely. Also in Isaiah 54, verses 4 through 8, it says, Do not be afraid. You will not be put to shame. Do not fear disgrace. You will not be humiliated. You will forget the shame of your youth and remember no more the reproach of your widowhood, for your maker is your husband. Your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. He is called the God of all the earth. The Lord will call you back as if you were a wife deserted and distressed in spirit, a wife who married young only to be rejected, says your God. For a brief moment I abandoned you, but with deep compassion I will bring you back. In a surge of anger I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting kindness I will have compassion on you, says the Lord your Redeemer. So if we could climb inside the, mount, the, the mind of Jesus at the time of this wedding, we might find him reciting maybe these verses or other verses like them from the Hebrew uh, scriptures, right? Thinking towards the future of his coming accomplishment of redemption and reconciliation that is offered to the nations of the earth. Taking that shroud away that covers their hearts and minds. His mind, his heart, always focused on the larger picture of re redemption of humankind and revealing the signs of his glory to all the people groups of the world. This was why he came. This is why all time and eternity pivot on Jesus. He was cognizant of this stuff from the very beginning. But, we are like them, right? Everyone else back at that time is only focused on the moment, only focused on the wedding, right? You know, the lack of wine, the, the embarrassment, the shame that that might bring because they didn't plan well or they didn't have enough money or whatever. The here and now, all the minute troubles of the here and now. But Jesus is contemplating greater and more wonderful things in this moment says to us, maybe we should lift our minds to that, right? Thoughts of redemption and reconciliation of the world. And this is his first sign, using the ceremonial jars to create wine from water. Perhaps he thought that, uh, of that future moment in John 19.30, 19 verse 30, when on the cross, dying for the sin of all the peoples that day, he asked for a drink. And it says, when he had received the drink, Jesus said, 
it is finished. Tetelestai, right? It is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. It is finished because his death would satisfy the great requirements of the law on all of humankind for those who would recognize the signs and accept him. It's only natural that in contemplating his death, which would bring forgiveness to God's people, Jesus turns his t- attention to these large jars that, are, uh, that held water for purification. These jars would store water u- that was used for an immersion pool to cleanse somebody prior to their act of worship, sort of like symbolically washing away their sin, right? Now, you may or may not know uh, the process for a Muslim uh, before they can perform the sholat, the, 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 the ritual prayer that they do, they're supposed to do five times a day. And they, and, and they also must perform this wudu, this uh, purification washing, before they do that each time. Wudu is an important part of the sholat that, it, that if it's left out due to ignorance or um, forgetfulness or negligence, their prayer will not be accepted by Allah, right? Because the prophet Muhammad said, no sholat, no prayer, is accepted without wudhu, the the purification, the process of purification. So before they begin to wash, they have to say bismillah. In the name of Allah, silently to themselves, they start this thing. And and the prophet Muhammad taught that you have to start with the right side first, your right hand, your, your things like that. So you wash your right hand from fingertip to wrist three times, making sure water touches every part of your hand, and then you do the same thing with the left hand. Then cupping water in your right hand, you rinse your mouth out three times, right? Suck it in, spit it out. Suck it in, spit it out. Suck it in, spit it out. And then again, cupping water in your, in your right hand, you inhale water into your nostrils, and you, you blow it out three times. Then every part of the face needs to be washed from ear to ear and from top of the forehead down to the chin three times. And then, and then with a beard like mine, you have to wa- run your wet hands through your beard, right? Then you wash your arms starting from the fingertips uh, up to your elbows three times, making sure that no part is left dry following the same process with the left arm three times. Then you move your wet hands, hands from the top of your head a forehead to the back of your head and then forward once and no matter if you're bald or not you have to do that and then using your wet hands you use your index finger and your thumb to cleanse your ears from uh, you know behind your ears with your thumb and then inside your ears with your with your fingers then you wash your feet three times from your toes uh, of your right foot and up to and including your ankle making sure that water touches every part of your right foot especially between your toes and especially the back of your ankle. And this is done three times, and then you do the same thing with your left foot three times. A lot of work, isn't it? Then you can recite the shahada and the dua, because when the prophet would complete this whole wudu process, he would say the shahada, I testify that there is no God but Allah, and that Muhammad is his servant and messenger. Muhammad is his prophet, right? And after that statement, you would say, the, the, you would say oh, oh Allah, make me one uh, among those who seek repentance and make me among those who purify themselves. And at this point, the wudhu is complete, and then 
you can pray, and maybe your prayers will be accepted to God. This is why when with Afghan Muslims living in my house, every time I go into my bathroom, there is water all over the sink and the floor. It drives me crazy. It drives me crazy because they're washing their feet and their hands and everything in my sink, <laughs> right? But no prayer accepted without purification. No prayer accepted without purification. Notice how much work that is to do that five times a day just to be able to pray. But Jesus is saying right here in this passage that I'm pouring out my blood for you. You feel that? That my blood purifies you. My blood makes it you able to be able to enter the presence of the Father once and for all. That's the good news. It's why upon Jesus' death, if you remember, the curtain in the temple uh, covering the most holy place, that place that housed the, the presence of God, right? That only one guy could go in one time a year and this with all kinds of ritualistic purification, right? That big curtain, 60 feet tall, 30 feet wide, four inches thick of woven yarn was ripped in two when Jesus died on that cross. Because it symbolized that now we can enter into God's presence, all of us, any of us, all the time, and have fellowship with God because we've been washed with the blood of Christ. Amen. Amen. And that's because these vessels, which once housed water for purifying people of sin, are here transformed by Jesus as vessels of house wine for celebrating this marriage, which symbolized reconciliation and rest restoration of Israel with God. Imagery which may have been lost on those people, you know, because this is the first sign, and they're sitting there at a wedding, and they're not really thinking about this, and they couldn't see the final destination of their road trip yet. Many of them would probably need many more signs to understand where Jesus could take them in life. Since this water, which bathed and symbolically cleansed people of their sin for worship, changed now to wine, takes our thoughts, if you're thinking about it, to the Last Supper, doesn't it, with the wine as a symbol of his blood, which cleanses people truly of, of their sin. Something that we remember once a, once a month here, we're going to do it next week at the Lord's table. Celebrating the blood which covers us, taking away the wrath of a holy God against our sin, like that beautiful old song, Covered by the Blood. It says, once in sin's darkness night, I was wandering alone. A stranger to mercy, I stood, but the Savior came nigh, and when he heard my faint cry, he put my sins under the blood. They are covered by the blood, my sins are all covered by the blood. Mine iniquity so vast have been blotted out at last. My sins are all covered by the blood. Amen. Full stop. It's true of you in Christ. So Jesus responds to, the, at this wedding, responds to, to thinking about his death with an outpouring of, of gratuitous grace. 
an outpouring of wine in a symbolic nature of what he would ultimately accomplish by his blood. The purification jars now hold 120 to 180 gallons of the best wine, a visual display of God's grace towards people, his blood poured out on humanity in absolute gratuitous abundance. Rodney Whitaker says, Jesus is the good wine that has been kept back until now. And that passage concludes by saying that the glory of God has been revealed in this moment and that the disciples believe in him. So God shows up in the mundane, everyday events of our lives, like a wedding or whatever it might be, and he dispenses his grace to us. When and where, here's your question, when and where did he show up in the mundane events of your life? Do you remember that? Do you remember, can you recall the first time you became aware of the covering of his blood over you, the, the gratuitous outpouring of himself for the sake of redemption due to his love for you? I can remember it. I can remember exactly where I was. The first time I felt the pull of Christ's grace upon my life. I can remember it as clear as day. My brother... My brother's eight years older than me. My one brother is. He's also a pastor in Florida. He had invited me to a church service, and I reluctantly well went. I, I felt very out of place. I, I, had, I was wearing all black leather, and I had a mohawk, <laughs> believe it or not. And I sat very quietly in the back row uh, of the church under a balcony. I chose that spot because it was dark, and I was trying to hide from everybody around me. I didn't wanna, really want to be there. I didn't feel cut from their cloth. I didn't fit the part, so to speak. And what they had, I didn't have, nor did I particularly want. I wasn't there to get it. I was just being nice to my brother until the preacher began to speak. I remember that. Maybe it's why I preach today. I can't re remember his words exactly. This is going back like 30-some-odd years now. But they were gospel-filled, and they were powerful. I remember that. Suddenly, I was gripped. I was absolutely gripped by the love of Christ, his genuine sacrifice for me. It all, all the signs came together. It was like somebody installed a GPS in my soul with all the signs in place, and I suddenly understood it. And I listened so intently, and I didn't want anybody to look my way, and I kind of slunk, slunk down in the dark because they would see me crying. I was crying. Tough guy with his leather jacket and his, his uh, mohawk crying back there in the back row. My heart was like metal being pulled out by the, the magnet of Christ on the stage. It was crazy. I remember that feeling. And the preacher gave an altar call. Oh. I, just, I was so embarrassed. It took all my energy not to go forward. I was like almost drawn. I was almost floating out of my seat. I had to grab hold of my chair not to go up, and I didn't. I didn't go up. I don't know. I still to this day don't know why I didn't. I wanted to, but I didn't. But the point is that Jesus had entered my mundane life when I didn't expect it. Ugh. There was some, something greater, more wonderful than I could ever imagine, now calling my soul to itself. Something 
greater and more profound than I could ever know or expect. I was no longer concerned with how I looked or girls or money or where I'd go to college or any of the other thousands of suddenly unimportant garbage that floated around in my mind on a usual day. God had revealed himself in Jesus. His blood had covered me. It was warm, it was comforting, and it was joyously convicting. And I was soaked to the bone, and life would never be the same. I would later officially bow my knee in my apartment to Christ, my King Jesus, and his calling was just something I could never resist. I just couldn't get away from it. Do you remember your moment? Have you had your moment? If you're having it right now. This wedding is, and wine is a picture of the gospel. A mistake is made. Perhaps they failed to sort of properly calculate what they would need, or maybe somebody just drank too much, but they had run out. It was a shame. And Jesus contemplates his own death, and he pours out grace, and we see that God is at work in the world through Jesus for our salvation. And the only response that we have, the only thing we can do is bow our knee and believe, as the disciples did that day. Let me pray for us. Father, going back to that moment, mm -hmm. we don't chase feelings, but man, it's nice to have them. It is good to remember our first love. It's good to remember the first time you called us. When, you, when we were laying there spiritually dead and you, you leaned over our face and you said, wake up, son, wake up, daughter. And breath came into our lungs and we opened our eyes. And there was our creator. A God who could crush us but doesn't. Who could destroy us and would be perfectly just in doing so. But instead breathes life back into us. We thank you so much, Lord Jesus, for that moment. And I pray that if anybody in this room has not had that moment, that they would now. And that they would bow their knee to you and believe in you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I think we have a few people that are going to pray for us this morning. And, uh, and then I'll wrap it up just before you guys start.